All right. If you have a Bible, you can go to Romans. We're going to spend a good bit of time there. Um, we have been in a series called Making Sense of the Church. And so we've been spending the past few weeks looking through uh, what exactly the Bible lays out the church ought to do and say and act like and look like and sound like. And uh, as we're progressing through how we ought to treat each other, which is where we've been the past few weeks, um, we come to this place where we have to say, what is it that we believe? What is it that um, at the end of the day, the buck stops here? This is the gospel. This is good news. This is who we are. We talk about it every week, but we've never yet just gone and looked through what would be the book of theology in the Bible and say, this is the gospel. And so what I want to do today is just lay out for you as clear as I can, as simple as I can, and as fast as I can, what the gospel is. When, if you are new to the church or have only been a Christian for a short period of time or are coming back to church um, after being away for a while, uh, we talk all the time here about good news. And so I want to define that for you, but let me give you a little bit of background on why we're choosing Romans uh, to be our place to find a definition of the gospel. Uh, I'll say this first, is that from a human perspective, we disbelieve the gospel every day. In some area of your life and mine, every single day, we disbelieve the gospel. We may say one thing about believing that God can provide, but in some instance, somewhere... We fall short of that, whether it be in your finances or whether it be in your relationships or whether it be in your parenting or whether it be in work. In some place, we are not totally satisfied in Christ. And so there's always sanctification taking place. There's always God moving us to be more like his son. And so we disbelieve the gospel. Every day. And so Paul's primary purpose in writing the book of Romans under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome was because they were struggling with a few things doctrinally, not necessarily writing to a specific issue like in Corinthians. They were uh, sexually deviant, and so they got two letters. (laughs) Romans was Paul's way of writing to this church who had never received apostolic instruction. You say, well, we don't either. Yes, we do. We have the Bible. All right? We don't need a fresh word. We don't need a new word. We have the word, and it is sufficient. And so Paul's writing Romans, this letter to the Romans, because they've never been given. They don't have a Bible. Uh, They've never been given apostolic instruction. And so um, as the book of Acts says, we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. And so Paul's giving them apostles' teaching teaching. And so Paul doesn't diagnose any specific issues. He's just laying out what the gospel is and does. And it is both the foundation and the nature of the Christian faith. And that's what is important for us today. So as we go through this talking about making sense of the church, what is the church? Why do we do what we do? Everything starts here and everything moves here. 
So we start with what God says about himself and about us, and then we live in that space. We move in that space. And I could never do justice to the book of Romans, so don't hang that on me, all right? Because uh, some of my heroes in the faith through the years have spent years. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones spent eight years, wasn't finished, and died, all right? So uh, don't expect to get a lot of that eight years of content today, all right? I want to break it into three sections for you and just give you an overview, and then it would be a great thing for you to go back and read through Romans uh, on your own. But uh, let me give you what some... uh, Those who have gone before us have said about Romans, just to give you a picture before I give you the outline. Uh, Robert Capon, a theologian, said this, The epistle to the Romans has sat around in the church since the first century like a bomb ticking away the death of religion. And every time it's been picked up, the ear-splitting freedom it has has gone off with a roar. The only sad thing is that the church as an institution has spent most of its time playing bomb squad and trying to defuse it. For your comfort, though, it can't be done. Your freedom remains as close to your life as Jesus and as available to your understanding as the nearest copy of Romans. Like Augustine, therefore, take and read and then hold on to your hat. Compared to that explosion, the clap of doom Sounds like the cap of a pistol. That's a big, that's a mouthful, but it's a glorious book. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word. How are you doing on that? But also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were the daily bread of his soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Calvin, I got a quote in my phone here from John Calvin too. Here's what he said. The doctrines of the book of Romans are considered and discussed under four main propositions and this is important for us. All men are guilty before God. All men need a savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior, and we are all one as the church because of Christ. So that's why we come to Romans today. That's why we, when we're making sense of the church, have to go here and say, what is the gospel? Because those are big statements from big people in the faith, not perfect people. Every one of those people I just quoted had major flaws, just like your pastor has major flaws just like you have major flaws, and that's the point. And so when we come to Romans, I just want to go quickly through three aspects of Romans, and it will give you the clearest picture of the gospel that we are able to wrap our minds around. The first thing is this. If you're taking notes in your binder or taking notes on the app, um, here, here's what Part one is, part one of Romans, chapters one through three, is a diagnosis. When you pick up Romans and you read the first three chapters, it is an impossibility for you to say, I am okay. I am good. Okay? Most people in this culture pick on Romans chapter one because it condemns homosexuality. Well, it also condemns talking back to your parents. 
in the same sentence. Okay, so what Paul's doing is not saying homosexuality is wrong. He is saying that, but that's not the main thrust of chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3, the main point is you are wrong. You are broken. There's a diagnosis that you have an incurable disease that cannot be helped. That is what the first three chapters are talking about. Look at Romans chapter 3. It was, by the way, it was really difficult to, through like these multiple chapters, to pick one scripture to share with you. So you should really go read it. All right, but let's go to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, and let Paul and God speak for themselves. Here's what it says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all. Is anybody left out of that? No, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and no one seeks after God. By the way, you'll hear preachers talk about the offense of the gospel. That's the offense. When I stand up here on Easter and say, you are a bad person, people get offended by that. Because people don't believe that they're bad. We believe in our heart that we're inherently good, but yet we never arrive at what we seek because we're bad. Look at this. It goes on. All have turned aside together. All right. So now it's not just individually, but together we're terrible. They've all turned aside together. They have become worthless. Well, that doesn't sound very loving. No one does good, but I'm a good person no one does good. Why? Because in our good, we're selfish. It's not good. Our actions may be good, but the heart that lies underneath is not good. The Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? I can't even tell you right now that I'm good because I'm not. I can't understand the things in my heart. The Holy Spirit must do His work. And in case you didn't understand that, here's what Paul goes on to say. Their throat is an open grave. (laughs) They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The diagnosis is this. Romans is a book. The first three chapters are held up as a mirror in front of your face to say, here you are in all of your badness and all of your ugliness and all of who you actually are apart from Christ. You see, because we don't ever know that there's good news until we get the bad news. You'll never be grateful for the goodness of God if you don't know the badness of man. And so, the people who are ripe for the harvest, ready for the gospel, are those who know they've crashed and burned. Those who know they're desperate. Those who have sat at the bottom and are sitting at the bottom and are aware of their desperation. 
It's only then does the gospel of good news being heralded into your soul make a difference. And John chapter 6 makes it very clear that even at that, unless the Holy Spirit draws you to himself, you can't be drawn. Because we are not seeking God. We're not. Bad people are all that there are. It's the most freeing and the most divisive statement that the gospel makes. That bad people are all that there are. Some of you have told me that you are offended that I say that a lot. And I understand that. I am too. I think I'm pretty awesome. Only one person's laughing. It's not a good sign. But why is that so important? Why is it so important for you to have the right perspective of yourself? Because if you don't see yourself as God sees you, it's a very dangerous place to be. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon many years ago called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Why? Because God is angry at sin. And we should also pay attention that he is angry at the sinner. There's a statement out there that says that uh, hate the sin but not the sinner. Well, that's fine for you and I, but let's not tell people that that's where God lives and breathes. Because he says, if you're not for me, you're against me. He says, if you're caught in the middle where you're not for me and not against me, I would prefer to vomit you onto the side where you're against me. So what Paul's doing in Romans is laying out the bad news first. He's diagnosing you. He's diagnosing me. He's diagnosing the world. When I, when I leave this place and I talk to people during the week and they want to say, well, if God's so loving, but... Let's back up, okay? First of all, we're not just condemning one sin that happens to be hot in culture right now. All people fall under this category of being a sinner separated from God. That's the diagnosis. You have an incurable disease. John Piper says it well as he relates the human condition in a sermon he preached on that text. Here's what he says. Romans teaches us that the most fundamental problem in the universe is that God's human creatures, all of us, have sinned and fallen short of his glory and are now condemned under the omnipotent wrath of God. There is the problem of our condition called sin and there is the problem of its consequence called wrath. Another way to say that is that there is real guilt on every person because of sin. And there is real condemnation on every person because the judge and maker of the universe is just and holy. Paul's conclusion after two chapters of acting as the prosecuting attorney is Romans 3.9. What then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no, none righteous, no, not one. There is no distinction. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So if you need a reason to not just point fingers at the homosexuals or not to just point fingers at uh, whoever the pet sin is of the culture, it would be that. Because we sin too. We are under the same wrath of God. Now, out of that bad news, Paul delivers good news. Because while there's a diagnosis there's deliverance. There's deliverance because you have a great physician. 
Paul locates the gospel outside of you. You see, you can pick up a book today, a self-help book today at any bookstore in America and start to think that from within you can create your future, that you can create the right possibilities. But here's the problem with that. Uh, I'm thinking of one right now. It's called Your Best Life Now. Well, if this is your best life, that's true, but only if you're going to hell. You can create your best life now, but only if you're going to hell. If you want your problem truly solved, you need a Savior. And so the bad news segues into the most glorious news, and it gets propped up as glorious gospel, good news, grace, because when you see what you really are, it makes Jesus that much better. So listen to what Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 24, says says, but for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at, um, drop down to chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then one more 26 to 39. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes with for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I probably don't need to say anything else, right? Because God locates the gospel outside of us. And that is glorious good news. 
John MacArthur, in uh, talking about conversion and salvation, says it this way. When Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus asked him the obvious question, how can somebody be born again? Do you want me to go back in my mom and come out again? The answer is no. What was Jesus saying? Just like you had nothing to do with your first birth, you have nothing to do with your second birth. It is all outside of you, and there is no better news in all the world than that Jesus stepped out of the splendors of heaven, that God became a man. You want to know what makes Christianity different than every other religion? That God didn't expect you to rise to him, but he came to you. That is the gospel, that although you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the gospel. You know the name Immanuel Kant. His philosophy was you are what you do. Jesus' philosophy is you are what I've done. Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 18. this, This is the gospel that Jesus came for the lost, for the prisoner, for the captive, and he came to set you free. That is orthodoxy. That is the gospel. That you would be diagnosed and that Jesus would be your deliverer, your rescuer, your savior. That's the gospel. That is what we would call an orthodox faith. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The gospel doesn't stop there. How does our orthodoxy, okay, jump into the deep end with me. How does our orthodoxy inform our orthopraxy? In other words, how does our theology, what we believe, inform how we live? See, because James would say it this way, if you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're not a Christian. He says we have to be doers of the word, not just hearers. So what does that look like? Thankfully, in that last section, chapters 12 through 16, we get a description. When you've been diagnosed and delivered by Jesus, what does that do? The gospel that goes in always comes out. Let me say that again. Listen. The gospel that goes into your life will always come out of your life. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Familiar verses if you've been in church. It says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that's the gospel, you've been delivered, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's an interesting phrase, right? Because literally in Greek it means living, dying that you're, here, here's what your life is. Here was, here's what the gospel looks, out, looks like lived out on the ground. That you're living and dying every day. That who you are is dying and who Jesus is is living through you. You are living, dying. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some of your, some of your translations will say, which is your reasonable service. It's a good way to put it. If chapters 1 through 11 are true... It is your reasonable service to die at the feet of Jesus and allow him to live through you. What a privilege. What a privilege. It goes on in verse 2. He says, how do you do that? Do not be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do I have 13, 14? Okay. You should write that down and go look it up later. We don't have time. But you should look it up later. Romans 13, 14. Here, let, let, me, let me put some handles on that for you. Okay? When you do good works for your neighbor and not for God's approval, 
you will, have, you will know that you are living in the gospel. You see, because it's out of good news that we live. It's out of good news that we serve. It's out of salvation that we work. We don't work for salvation. We work from salvation. And that's a very subtle nuance, but it changes everything. It takes the pressure off of you and puts it with God. Jesus said this way, uh, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Right? You know what a yoke is? It's like this giant piece of wood that would go on two oxen, and it would be so they could only go straight. And Jesus said, if you yoke up with me, you'll only go straight. And I'll carry the weight. I'll carry the weight. That's why Paul could say things like he did in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know the power of his suffering. Who prays that? Christians. Because... That's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus is. I like the way one theologian said it. God's office is at the end of your rope. Because you stop believing in yourself. And you start believing in Him. The living, dying. At RCC we say serve the city. And here's what we mean by that. Listen carefully. This is important. What we mean is that you would go. Not that you would stay here or that we would have a ton of events here, but that you would go. That you would go home and be a good neighbor, a good citizen, lead a generous life, be an advocate for the poor and an advocate for those suffering injustice. That you would go out and be the gospel. That Jesus would come in and work through you. And how do you put those kind of gospel glasses on? Verse 2 gives us the answer. Don't conform to the age that you live in. It's very difficult in the United States of America to not chase the American dream, to not do what's most comfortable. I'm wrestling with this too. I'm not, I'm not yelling at you this time. I yell at you sometimes. Not on this one. Don't conform to the age you live in. It's not easy because it usually leads to persecution or suffering and or suffering but you transform yourself by the renewing of your mind. How do I do that? Pray without ceasing, delight in the law of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what that looks like. So listen, no, no pithy statements today. Probably, probably not a whole lot of tweet-worthy stuff. But you don't need that from me. You need to be diagnosed. You need to be delivered. And that ought to be a descriptor for how you walk out of here and live your life. I love the way Scripture says it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't need me to be good. You don't need the person around you to be good. You need Jesus to be perfect because He's called you to be perfect. But then He's clothed you in His righteousness. It's good news. It's good news. If you're a dad today, you don't need five steps to be a better dad. You need Jesus you need Jesus. You need Jesus for salvation and you need Jesus for sanctification. The best advice I could give you as a father is to fall more in love with Jesus because that's what the Bible says will cause you to be conformed into the image of Jesus. If 
you're a wife today, you need Jesus. If you're a child today, you need Jesus. If you're a teenager, you need a whole lot of Jesus. <laughs> because the world's going to fail you, teenagers. Probably already has. Your parents know that. That's why they're on you. We together, as we studied a few weeks ago, are the church. We are the temple of God being built up together. And if we want to see God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we have to bask in the glory of the gospel and then go live like it matters. Because if I have everything that I need in Christ, I can go serve everybody out there, whether they appreciate it or not, expecting nothing in return. Because I have everything I need in Christ. Stand with me. We're going to pray and sing one more song. Uh, We're going to sing this song not because we just like to sing, but because when the gospel comes into your heart, when when the word of God washes over you, It should cause you to want to praise that the Bible repeats that over and over and over again. And so we want to give you the opportunity to do that. So don't waste your words. Don't waste your praise. All right? Let's stand together. Let's proclaim the name of Jesus because he is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good today.